1 Corinthians chapter 5. The title that I've given to this lesson tonight is Be the Church. Be the Church. And this chapter is about discipline, about church discipline. See, there's a Christian in the church. Uh, they call it a so-called Christian in some translations. Some will say that bear the name of a Christian or a believer. Uh, but all the commentary and the experts believe that this was a Christian. Uh, but he had been committing a horrible sin. And for some reason, the church in Corinth was celebrating this sin. They were boasting in this sin. It doesn't really tell us exactly why uh, they're boasting, but they are. And you get the sense that Paul, from a distance, is just, again, kind of screaming at them, stop this insanity, okay? Stop celebrating sin and be the church. Stop doing what you're doing and be the church. Be the church of Jesus Christ, okay? Stop acting like the world. It's kind of been a theme, hasn't it, of of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, of not being the world. It's kind of like, you know, and I'm sure this has been said of us before, it's almost like, you know, you've seen the times when the children were running wild and going crazy and you're wondering, like, what are those parents doing? Or maybe, they, maybe they're a little bit too friendly with the children and not maybe more of a friend than a parent. And you always want to say, hey, be a parent, right? That's kind of what, that's kind of what Paul is saying here is be a parent, be be the church. You're not being the church. So that's really kind of what we're talking about tonight is being the church, what it means to be the church, okay? And before we dive into the text, I want to give you kind of two things to remember that I think help us. One, we do need to remember that this is a church problem. This could have been focused, this entire chapter could have been focused on, on this man and what he was doing. Could have been a great lesson around around this man, but it's not. This whole chapter is really about the church and about what the church isn't doing and what the church should be doing, okay? So it's about the church. And then secondly, let's remember that while this is a very tough chapter about church discipline, okay, let's remember that they didn't just wake up and, and get to this spot. Okay, this just didn't happen overnight, right? This, is, this has been a, a long period of really not following God's commands. Okay, it's like they've started in step five and forgot about steps one through four. You know, it's like whenever, you know, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time in my life helping Santa put together Christmas presents, okay? And every time I help Santa, a number of times at least, okay, um, I, you know, you'll, you'll get going along. Everybody's always done this, right? You just didn't follow the directions like me. I just jump right in and eventually I may get to some point in, in this little project and decide it doesn't work, doesn't fit together, doesn't kind of mesh together well. And I go back and look at the direction for that point. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to follow this direction, but it still doesn't work. And then what do I find out? Well, the reason it doesn't work is because I didn't do steps one, steps two, steps three, and steps four right. So when I get to step five, it doesn't work, right? I can't put it together. I got to go back and start over. Well, that's a little bit about what we have here in chapter five is that they haven't really done a good job with steps one through four. You could say step one was be a team. We talked about that in chapter one, right? That we need to act together as a team. We're all on the same team. We're all followers of Christ. They've not done a very good job of that. 
the church of Corinth, all right? They, they certainly haven't done a good job in step two. We talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit, about, you know, really looking and understanding the depths of God. They've been pretty bad at that because they're still following the world. Uh, step three was really, we talked about being ministers. We're all ministers. We're all servants, okay? We're all servants of God. They've been horrible at that. And then last week, you know, step four, we talked about being obedient and Christ-like and gracious, all right, so sometimes when you don't follow the first four steps and you get to step five, sometimes it's really hard to follow step five. Sometimes it's impossible to follow step five. So you have a little bit of that going on here in the church. We all, we know this as a parent, right? If, if you've got children, you know that it's hard just to discipline your kids and do nothing else. You're not going to be a very effective as a parent if all you're doing is disciplining your children and you're not spending time with them and listening to them and loving them and serving them and helping them. Well, that's the same thing here. You're not going to be very effective as a church at being a church if you're not doing the other things. If you're not loving and you're not serving and you're not taking care of the, the widows and you're not helping the poor, if you're not doing all of those other things, you're not going to be really good at this church discipline, let me assure you, all right? You're going to be lacking in church discipline and you can't just open up the Bible to this one chapter or to any place and say, hey, I'm just going to do that one thing, all right? This doesn't work that way, all right? It's a, it's, it's a whole counsel of God. This is what we're trying to do, not, not just this page. A lot of people want to just pick out one thing, and, and that's their thing. But that's a big part of why this is such a difficult chapter, uh, is because this church in particular had not been being a church for some time. It just didn't happen overnight. And that's part of the problem. Sometimes it's part of the problem for us too, right, in our life. We, we tend to, to maybe have more problems than we should because we're not following all of this. We're just following maybe the parts that are easier that we want to follow. And that's a little bit about what's going on here in this chapter. So let's take a look. Uh, chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to start and just kind of go through this just by steps here. As, as you might say, step 1 and step 2 and step 3 and step 4 and step 5. So let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Well, first thing to, to note is that this is not gossip. It's actually happened. Okay, the first few words there is, is actually reported. I, I know that this has happened. Okay, and we also know that it must be very public, right? Because Paul, who's in Ephesus, has heard about this. So it's something, and you know, there's not uh, social media and round-the-clock news channels. So we know that this is a very public thing that's happening here because Paul knows about it, and he's writing this letter to talk to them about it. All right, and we know that this is also something that was really bad. It was incest. All right, I was trying to come up with something that I could uh, make analogous to a, a child. I couldn't come up with anything bad enough, okay, to equate to the incest that we are seeing here. I thought about maybe the, your, your son wrecked the car, but that didn't seem nearly bad enough for this, right? So I kept going down the list. I couldn't find anything. And how bad was it? What did he say in here in, in verses 1? He says, it is not tolerated even among pagans. So this is something so bad 
that not even the world would tolerate it. Not even the world would tolerate it. So I started thinking about that in today's context. I mean, do you think there's really anything that the world doesn't tolerate anymore? I mean, I came up with all kinds of stats and it just kind of overwhelmed me, but I, I really can't think of much that the world doesn't tolerate. I mean, if, if this was being written today, if somebody was doing something that was so bad in a church that not even the world would tolerate it, it would have to be, especially in, in this context of sin, it would have to be pretty bad, right? I mean, I saw this week an article, and I'd read this before, where Miley Cyrus is now pansexual, I guess. That's the new thing which just basically means anything, anything goes. There's no boundaries whatsoever. And, and the worst part about it is, is I saw an article about it and, and in the article it was talking about, you know, thank you for sharing this. We love you even more because of it. So that's what, that's, that's what the world tolerates. Not only do they tolerate it, okay, they love her for it. But Paul's point really here is, is you haven't even cleared the lowest of the low bars, okay? The world doesn't even tolerate what's going on in your church. So I just want you to get the sense that this is not just some minor issue, okay? This is something that is really bad, that the world has says is bad, okay? And that it's very public. It's, it's open and, and not so public that Paul knows about it from over in Ephesus, all right? And if you looked in the Old Testament for this sin, it means you're to be put to death. You would be killed for this sin if you went back to the Old Testament. Now, Paul takes it easy on him. What does he say? He says in there that you just have to remove him. Remove him from among you. Now, this would be one of those really, 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 really controversial words, okay? What does this mean? What does it mean to remove someone? This seems really harsh, right? This is the church after all. I mean, aren't we about sinners? <laughs> okay, so this is a really hard concept. And what this isn't talking about, this isn't talking about some kind of public embarrassment. Okay, this is not talking about degrading anyone, right? This isn't what this is about. This is about removing them though, Okay, because remember how bad this is. The world doesn't even tolerate it. It's worse than the pansexual deal, all right? This is really, really bad, okay? And, and, and this is about removing them from fellowship. There's been people, you won't know it, but there's been people that we've actually, actually had to ask leave this class, okay? Happens all over this church and all the different classes sometimes. It comes up when there's something that's just so bad that we need to just remove them, from the fellowship of believers. And that's what this is about. It's not about you can't come to this church anymore. It's not about you can't you know, come to the cross of Christ anymore. This is though you, you do lose some of the fellowship. All right. And one of the things in particular that it talks about, you know, if you just jump for a second over there to verse 11, you see at the end of verse 11, it says this, not even to eat with such a one. Can't partake in the Lord's Supper. It's really what that means. Okay, if you translate that, fast forwarding it today, so you can't take the Lord's Supper if you're this person that you've created this, you know, this sin that's, that's now open and hurting and, and harming the church. All right? The hope is, right, that by separating and moving them, like Jared was talking about tonight, that they'll come back. If they're really a Christian, they'll come back. And we're going to see that as we go through this. 
But instead of removing them, what, what are they doing as a church? They're proud of this. It says, and you are arrogant about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've really never seen a good parent that is proud of their children's disobedience. Now, I put the word in there, good. There might be a parent out there that enjoys seeing their child be disobedient. But the bottom line is, you know, really all disobedience by definition is bad, right? And all sin is bad. And when it's this flagrant and this severe, it can also be very destructive. But the one thing to to remember and to think about, and it's going on here, is, is if you ever stop really caring about sin, you'll stop caring about stopping sin. Okay? If you ever stop caring about sin you will stop caring about stopping sin. And that's what we see here. They've stopped caring about stopping sin. Okay, it's just part of who they are and part of what they're doing. And then if you look at verses three through five, it says, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. I am present being Paul. He's really trying to encourage them here. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are being the church, assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's a great illustration of the church. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that's pretty harsh, right? Sounds pretty bad. You are to deliver this man to Satan. That's pretty severe punishment. You know, it's happened a couple of other times in the Bible though, right? Remember Job, right? The devil came and asked for permission to basically try to destroy Job's faith. Also, it happened to Peter. It happened to Peter, right? I the devil come, came to say, you know, that actually Christ says that he came to me to say, I want to sift you, right? Like sifting wheat to separate the, the kernels from, from the, 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 what you're disposing of, okay? And boy, that's one of the great, if you want to go read something and say something, that's a great thing to go read and study because I just love this part of it because what does Christ say to him? But I, I'm praying for you. I mean, how good is that to have Christ I mean, I think you could tell me anything. You, I'm, you know, I'm going to heap fire on your head, but I'm praying for you. If I, you just couple it with Christ saying, I'm praying for you, man, that, that's got to feel good if you're Peter, okay? But why was Satan doing this? He was trying to shake Peter's faith. He was trying to shake Job's faith, right? Okay, so turning over to, 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 to Satan in, in those instances, all right, God was basically saying, hey, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to let them, I'm going to let him try to shake your faith. Why? Because I'm going to use it to refine you, right? We saw it in Job's life, refined Job, came back and made it through this, made him stronger, more of a man of God. At the end of the day, he he gave him double what he had before. Same with Peter, right? This happened way before he started his ministry, way before Pentecost, way before 3,000 plus lives were, were changed, Okay, so that's really what we're trying to do here. That's, that's the purpose of this. It isn't to just hand him over to Satan, right? It's to hand him over to Satan. Why? It says to, 
for the destruction of the flesh. You can just think of the flesh there as sin. For the destruction of the sin in his life so that his spirit may be saved. Right? The ultimate goal is repentance. We want to, we want to drive them back to God. I mean, when you discipline your children, when I discipline my children, I can tell you it's not very fun. And I don't do it to hurt them. I do it, why? Because I hope it will change their behavior. You know, I hope they'll stop doing what they're doing, okay? So that's a really tough verse for a lot of people. Again, sounds pretty harsh. You know, I'm going to take somebody, I'm going to turn them over to Satan, let him, let him sift through them, all right? Let him destroy them. You know, sometimes this happens. You know, we, you know sometimes this does happen. Sometimes it takes some destruction in your life, you know, to realize to get back to where God wants you to be, right? Sometimes you had to go through some difficult times when you're away from God. What Jarrett, when he was quoting up there, he was uh, from Adrian Rogers, the, the, the hardest place to be is someone that's, that's saved, that's out of fellowship. True, and sometimes God takes, you know, some extreme measures to get your attention. And then there in verse six, it says, your boasting is not good, okay? <laughs> that's obvious, um, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I love this. There's so much symbolism in these next few verses. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I love this, these, these few verses here because they're just filled with such symbolism. All right, why is he talking about leaven here? What is leaven? Leaven is like yeast, right? Leaven uh, helps bread rise. Okay, so when you put leaven into a loaf of bread, it spreads very quickly. It, and it puffs it up. Okay, those are very symbolic of sin. Leaven in the Old Testament is used to represent sin, and that sin can spread, right, through your own life and through the life of a church. And that puffing it up, okay, is about pride, symbolizes pride. And pride, we know, is one of the greatest sins. And then why is it that, so why is it he's talking about Passover, because at Passover, they have what they call, still celebrated today uh, by the Jewish people, the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. It runs for seven days, okay, after the Passover. So he's referencing this. He's talking also about referencing back to the original Passover, right? When, when they were told to take all the leaven out of their houses. And what did that Passover represent? It represented God saving them from death, Right? Saving them from death. Saving them from the wages of death or of sin, which is death. Right? That's what the Passover was about. And that's the illustration. That's the symbolism that Paul's trying, trying to draw back here. He's saying, listen, make sure you get rid of all this leaven, the sin. Because if you don't, it's going to spread. It's going to keep infecting you. All right? It's going to infect the whole body of the church if you don't get rid of this this leaven, this sin in your life. But he's also going further to say, also remember the Passover, okay? Remember that, that God saved his people from death, from the wages of sin? Well, remember Christ, okay? He's the eternal 
okay, Passover lamb. All right, that's what he's reminding them of. He's saying, listen, Christ did this, okay, so that you never have to sacrifice a lamb again and put blood over your door. And the reason is because Christ did that once and for all. That's why he says there in verse 7 that you are already unleavened. Okay, you don't have to do anything special. God, Christ, has cleansed you. He's imputed his righteousness to you. Okay, so stop celebrating sin. Okay, stand up, be a church. And instead of celebrating sin, what does he say? He said, celebrate the festival. Okay, celebrate what Christ has done. All right, instead of the malice and evil that's taking over and infiltrating your church, instead of that, what does he say? He says that you should, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, that is sincerity and truth representative of Christ. Okay, so instead of, instead of this evil that's running through their church, this leaven, the sin that's, in, that's impacting their church, that's spreading like a cancer in their church, he's saying, listen, stop this craziness. Get rid of that. Remember what Christ did for you. Remember that he cleansed you of this, gave you power over this. Celebrate that. Don't celebrate the sin. All right, don't be proud and boastful of the sin. Be proud and boastful that Christ gave you power over the sin because of what he did once and for all on a cross. Very, very important and very symbolic that Paul's trying to, 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 to make that connection back to something that they really understand. All of these people here in Corinth would have really understood this. They would remember the Passover. They would remember what it means. They would remember what leaven symbolizes. He's trying to make them understand Get rid of this sin in your life. Get rid of this sin that's in the church. And then in verse 9, he said, I wrote to you in my letter. A lot of talk about what this letter means. It obviously is a letter that's not recorded in the Bible. Okay, don't know why. God didn't want it in there. But he wrote to you in a letter, a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual and moral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So see, it sounds like they're a little bit confused. They got this other letter and he's trying to clear things up for them. Um, not that they have to get out of the world, right? He's not saying that you have to leave the world. It's not, you know, you can still be amongst sinners, be amongst all these people that we're talking about here. I saw a great quote that said that, we are like a ship at sea, okay? We can be in the sea, but if the sea starts coming into the ship, we're in trouble because it's going to sink. So it isn't that you have to get out of the world, stop associating with, with, with sinners. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. For what I have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Very important here. Okay, this is not um, this is not about how we interact and how we might you know, judge unbelievers. Very clear about that, right? He says it is God that will judge the unbeliever, all right? But it is the church that has an obligation and duty to judge the church, okay? First Peter 4 says that judgment begins 
in the household of God. All right, so he's making this very clear. He's clearing up the misunderstanding that must have come from his prior letter. And one more thing that's, that's, that's very important here. Uh, we're not just talking about sexual immorality. If we were talking just about sexual immorality, this would be a much easier chapter. Okay, because you can get a lot of people on board with being against things like pansexual, right? And right in here is probably against pansexual. Easy to do, right? But look at the list. It's not just sexually immoral. Look at verse 11. In addition to that, it is greed. Think about that, selfishness. Anybody guilty of selfishness, of greed? Or an idolater, worships idols. I mean, not just the golden calves, okay? Any idol. We have all kinds of idols available to us today. Reviler, that's verbally abusive. You know, someone that, that speaks, you know, poorly to someone. I've I, I, I violated that probably this week. A drunkard, a swindler, cheat, someone that cheats you, defrauds you. I mean, that's a pretty broad list, isn't it? I would say it maybe covers everything and everybody. So then the question becomes, okay, we can't just remove all those people, right? So that's not the standard that Paul's talking about here, is it? Because there'd be nobody left in church. We would have nobody here. All right, the room would be empty. <laughs> there'd be no teacher. There'd be no, no student. It'd be over, okay? So that's not really what we're talking about. Although you can't believe how much commentary is on this point, how many people are talking about this point. This is not what we're talking about, though. It isn't just everybody that violates these things. No, it's, it's what we've been talking about. It's, just, it's flagrant, right? It's something that is so bad that even the world wouldn't tolerate it, that's open, all right? It's, 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 and, it, and it's a big risk of infecting, all right, and hurting the witness. It's about hurting the witness of the church, I mean, sometimes something may not even look that bad, but if it hurts the witness of the church, okay, it may be very bad. It may be very bad. So it isn't just about what these represent. It's also the seriousness of it. Because what we're talking about here in church discipline, this chapter, is, is, is a harsh thing for something that is really severe and really tough and really bad. Okay, so it's not just everybody that violates one of these things. But, you know, even if you're not at this level, right, the church is here to help people, to serve, to love. I mean, so even if not to the level of we're going to turn you over to Satan, we as a church really should be trying to help you, though. Right? Help you get back in fellowship if, if you're dealing with some of these things. If, if, they, if they're starting to go and get a little worse, right? If they're starting to kind of get closer to the line. We're here as a church. That's what discipleship is about. I mean, you really get the sense that this church is pretty horrible at discipleship, don't you? I mean, you know, what is discipleship? Sitting down one-on-one -on -one with someone, trying to teach them about God and God's Word. I mean, don't you get the sense that if they were doing that, we wouldn't be talking about celebrating sin? Wouldn't be the case, would it? Wouldn't be the case. You know, so I don't know exactly where you draw the line and when it gets to that point. It's a lot of godly wisdom and discernment. But I do know this. I know that we as a church better be consistent. 
right? I mean, any, again, anybody that's a parent knows that parenting is first and foremost about consistency, right? It's about being consistent. I mean, I can tell you that too many people in the world, and a lot of them Christians, uh, I'm always amazed at how many people I meet that maybe grew up in church that just seem so hurt and scarred by the church. You know, and too many times uh, it's because they just don't really feel that the church is very consistent. That maybe there's some double standards in the church. A lot of people believe this. A lot of people have been hurt by this because the church not being consistent. We've got to change that. I mean, the church, if anything, needs to be consistent. Consistent about what? About this right here, right? God's word. Not always the case, though. A lot of churches aren't consistent about how they apply God's word. We see it all the time. They're not being the church. Not consistently applying God's word. So if I had to sum this up, I'd give you three things to think about. Three practical points that I think we can get out of this chapter that maybe brings it all together and sums it up and to what I think it means to be the church. I've got them on the handout there for you. The first... The church must always hate sin. The church must always hate sin. He talked about it in here. He said that rather you should mourn as opposed to celebrating it. You should mourn this. You know, we've talked about this before in here that, you know, sin is like that stone that you can drop in the water. And, you know, you might drop it in and the stone goes away and you'll never see that stone again. But that stone leaves behind a ripple effect. And those ripple effects, sometimes they can get to the size of a tsunami. Right? The, the sin's gone. It's, you know, maybe it's in the rearview mirror, you think. But there's a big ripple effect. And when it's willful and when it's flagrant and when someone's not being repentant about it, it can really, 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 really do damage to a church. It can really do damage to a fellowship of believers. And it becomes a slippery slope, doesn't it? You know, as to where you draw this line. It becomes a very much a slippery slope. I bet this church did not start out celebrating this sin. I bet you that's not where they began. I guarantee you they started out with other sin. We talked about it. They haven't been following the steps. This is something that just happens over time. It happens in our lives this way too, doesn't it? One little sin kind of adds to another sin, which leads to another sin. Sins get bigger. You know, we get maybe, maybe we're not in fellowship anymore. Maybe, you know, we've, we're away from church. We're not reading our Bible. We're not in quiet time the way we should. And, you know, we just get further from God and sin gets easier and we stop caring as much about sin. You know, we talked about this. We talked about mourning. We said, you know, it's, it's this sorrow and this grieving over sin, you know, and when you really get to the point where you'll hate sin, I'll tell you, you'll get to the point where when we talked about in the Beatitudes, you're grieving sin because of what it does to God. Again, Jared talked about it tonight, you know, just we all remember what it does to a holy God. Okay, that's, that's the morning he's talking about even here. So the church has to always hate sin. King David was an example of this even tonight, right? About one sin leading to another, leading to another that just ends in total destruction. That's what's happened here. 
One sin led to another sin, led to another sin. Now they're celebrating the worst of the sins and it's destroying the church. Number two, the church must be consistent. You can't pick and choose what you want to obey. All right, you got to watch that slope. Too many churches today do not live by the whole counsel of God. Too many churches don't. See it all the time. Makes it very, very hard. I mean, we're here calling this, this guy a hypocrite because he's a believer and, but not repentant, causing all this damage. Could be said of the church. A lot of churches out there could be called hypocrites. Hard to hear, but true. And it's a good lesson for us too, isn't it? You know, one of my favorite sayings uh, nowadays is, you know, don't be mad at me because my sin's not your sin. That's pretty good. Don't be mad at me because my sin's not your sin. I mean, what are you talking about there, right? It's just saying, hey, remove the log. Okay. Stop throwing stones. It's a good lesson for us. We can't pick and choose our, own, our sins and what's, what's good and what's bad. It's about living by God's word and all that we do. And then number three, whatever we do, whatever we do, we, the church, must, must act in love, truth, sincerity, and grace. We must. Grace and discipline, they are not opposites. Although some people in the church today believe that's the case. A lot of churches today, they tolerate this. They have, this, they have an attitude of tolerance because they have decided that, that grace trumps God's word. And that's just not true. Okay, grace is a wonderful thing, but grace does not trump God's word. But people believe that today, so they just tolerate it. They do it in the name of tolerance. I'm going gonna, I, I, I to give in because I'm going to show them grace. I'm going to show them grace. But what you're, all, what you're really doing is you're harming them. Just like your child. Discipline is good if, if, it, if it helps you repent. Turning over to Satan is good, all right, if it, if it refines your faith because you've been running away and been failing to repent. And, you know, it's funny that this whole chapter being about discipline, okay, people, if you, again, if you read a lot of commentaries, that the, the knock on, where's the grace, where's the grace, where's the grace, where's the grace? Listen, the guy that wrote this, I promise you, he knows about grace, Right? Paul knows about grace. If it wasn't for grace, okay, he was, he was murdering Christians. By God's grace, he shows up, right, on that road, and there's a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. He saves him to be one of the great missionaries and church planters of all time. Could have been like Ananias. Ananias, because then, you know, you, you lied, you cheated, you stealed, you're dead. Could have been. Paul knew God's grace. Grace does not trump, though, God's word. Okay, we can't be tolerant of this sin. But what we can do, what we can do is we can do what, we can lead with love. We can lead, though, in truth and sincerity. Just because you're disciplining somebody doesn't mean you're not showing them grace. That's where people get totally confused. We just need to always lead with love. Man, if I could just tell you one thing, always lead with love. In discipline, I mean, in this, I mean, this whole chapter is wrapped up to me in love. They love this guy. Love the church. It's not about, not about hating this person. It's not about turning over to the devil. It's about helping him so that he'll be saved in the day of the Lord. That's what it's about. Every lesson I do, um, I do what I call the sermon in the sentence. You've heard a lot of people say that. It's very good to kind of 
eventually draw your thoughts back. And I just thought this would be a good one to end with. If the church today doesn't start being the church, if we don't mourn sin, if we don't live by the whole counsel of God's word and do it with truth and sincerity, like here in Corinth, it will hurt our witness before the world and it will destroy the church. If the church doesn't start being the church, mourning sin, living by God's word, and doing it with truth, sincerity, consistency, love, it's going to hurt our witness before the world, and it's going to destroy the church. And that destroy could be a big C or the little C. It could be the big C or the little C. Could you think of anything that is more true statement than that is today? We need more than ever for the church to be the church. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for how it just speaks to us. And Lord, if we just listen and God, we're just available that you just teach us so much. Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to, to die for us. God, it says, yet while we're still sinners, Christ gave his life so that we might have eternal life. I thank you that he is the great Passover lamb, Lord, that we every day of our lives get to celebrate the righteousness that we get because of Christ. Lord, we're just so grateful for the way you love us. Lord, I'm just so grateful for your faithfulness to us. We're so grateful for the way you love your church. Lord, I just want to pray now for... Lord, our church, pray for this church, Prestonwood, Lord. I pray, God, that you would always help us to be true to God's word, be consistent in all that we do, to always hate sin, but to always lead with love. Lord, I pray for the church as a whole. Lord, I pray, God, that we would come together and rally around the cross, Lord, and just Jesus and what he's done for us, Lord. I pray, God, that or always our witness would be true to Christ and what he's done for each and every one of us. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be just faithful to the gospel. Lord, I thank you for this class. I thank you for each person that is here tonight, Lord. I'm so grateful, God, for each one of them. Lord, I pray, God, for their lives. Lord, I pray, God, that you would bless them. Lord, I pray that you would protect them. Lord, I pray that you would give them great wisdom and discernment in their days. Lord, I pray that you would give them provision when they need provision and healing when they need healing. Lord, I pray that they would know you in such a special way. I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit. Lord, I pray that in their lives, Lord, you would use them mightily for your kingdom. And Lord, I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.